The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. And welcome to the Ray Hanania Radio Show. I am Ray Hanania. It is Wednesday, September 6, 2023, and this is Season 3, Episode 19. We're brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News, the voice of a changing region. Arab News is at ArabNews.com. Our radio show focuses on Arab American community issues and also on Middle East coverage from a U.S. perspective. We have two great guests today, Rania Sakar, Syrian American CEO of Intuit MailChimp and co-founder of Jasur, who is being awarded the Outstanding Arab American Philanthropist of the Year Award at the Center for Arab American Philanthropy, Threads of Giving Gala at the Guglielmo Winery on September 22nd. She will talk about the growing involvement of Arab American women in addressing Middle East related issues, her co-founding of Jasur, and her work to help Syrian youth. Our second guest is Joseph Tamraz. He's president of the Assyrian American Civic Club of Chicago. He'll discuss the large Assyrian community in the United States, a Christian non-Arab community that is often identified by others as Arab because of their sharing of Arab culture and language. Um, one of the issues he's going to talk about are the challenges Assyrians face and the issue of MENA, Middle East and North Africa category that's being placed or proposed for the U.S. Census. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can speak with our guests, Intuit MailChimp CEO, Rania Sakur, and Joseph Tamraz, president of the Assyrian American Civic Club of Chicago. We'll be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali al-Baghdadi and Fatty Bonham serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali al-Baghdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all seat guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. Yeah, you know, clap your hands. If you're happy, you know it and you really want Five-year-old Lila and her mom are on their way home from Grandma's, singing Lila's favorite song. A few blocks away, 25-year-old Dylan is visiting friends at a small party. He finishes off his last beer, Later, skater. gets in his truck, and starts for home. Mom and Lila turn onto Maple Street. If you're happy, you so does Dylan. 
Every 50 minutes in the United States, someone dies in a crash involving a driver impaired by alcohol or drugs. If you're impaired and you know it, don't drive. Drive sober. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Right now, I'd like to introduce the co-founder of Jasur, a U.S. not-profit that provides educational and professional development opportunities for Syrian youth and refugees around the globe, Rania Sukar. She's going to be honored with the Outstanding American Philanthropist Award uh, on September 22nd. Rania Sukar is also the CEO of Intuit MailChimp. You know, I'm a big MailChimp uh, user, and U.S. Air Radio Network is a big MailChimp user, and we have also used uh, Intuit's products, too. But before we get into all that, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're kind of a leading entrepreneur in terms of, um, you know, bringing businesses together, getting them focused and achieving things. How does somebody get to that point? Tell us about your background first. Sure. Well, I like to talk about my background in three parts, the three parts that take up the majority of my life. And that starts with my family. So I'm married um, to um, my husband, Kurosh, and we live in the Bay Area. And we have two young children, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And they are all consuming in the most beautiful way possible. Selma um, is very enthusiastic about the world and uh, can't wait to get up in the morning and tackle new challenges. And Dara, our three-year-old boy, is just obsessed with all transportation vehicles and um, is a handful, but a wonderful handful. So that's a, a huge part of my life. Um, the second big part of my life is the work I do with Jasur. So as we'll talk about, my family is originally from Syria. My parents got married and moved over to the U.S. and I was born in the U.S., but stayed very connected to, the, to Syria and uh, people in Syria. And I became very passionate as a result of that connection to help close the opportunity gap and help young people in Syria have hope, the type of hope that we had growing up here in the U.S., and so several friends and I co-founded an organization back in 2011 called Jasur, which means bridges in Arabic. And we are focused on closing that opportunity gap for Syrian youth, basically educating Syrian youth and focusing on a brighter tomorrow. And we've educated more than 10,000 young people through that journey. So that's another huge part of my life that takes up a lot of focus and a lot of time, but gives me tremendous amount of meaning and purpose. And then the third part of my life, and my husband jokes that I, I make it the third part because it takes up a lot of my life, is my professional work. So I have been very involved in the technology sector um, through the course of my career, spending time most recently with Intuit. Uh, as you said, um, the company creates so many products that help both consumers um, as well as small businesses. And our mission is to power prosperity around the world for both consumers and small businesses. And so I've had many very exciting roles here at Intuit. Um, in the last seven years, working on both helping small businesses close their cash flow gap with all of our products and QuickBooks focused on helping them get paid faster or access capital. And most recently in the last year, I've had the privilege to lead MailChimp, an extraordinary business that Intuit acquired a little over um, a year and a half ago. Uh, and that is all about helping small businesses grow. 
and find new customers and engage their existing customers in, in very impactful ways. So it's been a wonderful journey before into it. I spent time at Google, I spent time at McKinsey, and I spent time at Merrill Lynch. But I've been very fortunate to work at leading companies towards very important missions and impact over time. And, and go that's a phenomenal story. And I love the fact that it's founded in family. Tell us a little bit just about your heritage and your family, where they came from, how they got here to the United States. And I'm really interested in how a uh, Arab uh, American woman wasn't pushed to be a doctor or a uh, engineer, but instead got into computers. Give, give us a little thumbnail on the ancestry of your family. Well, first of all, I love that I thought the direction you were going to go in was an Arab American woman wasn't pushed to not be so career oriented, but you led with two wonderful careers, which is medicine and engineering. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, I think the Arab American community invests so heavily in women and girls and education. And so I love that you led with that question. Um, you know, um, my parents immigrated from Syria in the early 70s. And my dad is a doctor. And so um, he certainly had that path. My mom studied computer science. But we grew up um, really appreciating the values that both parts of our culture provided. We used to spend every summer in Damascus, as many families from the with Arab American heritage did, spending time back home in the region. And those were absolutely pivotal moments for me growing up. I saw the beauty of the culture and came to realize it in a big way. And it became a huge part of my identity, the beauty of the history, the rich history of that part of the world. When we'd go to Palmyra and, you know, see parts of Damascus as the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world, or we would experience the love of family. You know, there was never a moment where we'd be climbing up the stairs to our unit at the top of the building and doors wouldn't open up from relatives who would welcome us in for a spontaneous breakfast or lunch. I mean, there was never a moment where the family wasn't just overflowing wherever we were. So we got to experience that. But the most pivotal part of that experience was the relationships I formed with my cousins. And at very young ages, nothing separated us in this world. Everything we had, our dreams were the same, our energy was the same. By the time we hit our teenage years, my cousins, I started to notice that we, we, we diverged in quite a big way. I dreamt of going to Harvard and studying amazing things and all the things I would do with my career and the way I would change the world. And their dreams started getting smaller. They started um, getting married, the girls at the at very young ages, because there was no other goal in life than to get married. Right. The economy was prohibitive in terms of what they could do. And earlier, the boys were going to college. And then by the time the second and third son would get to college age, they stopped because there was no point. They were all ending up in their dad's business, splitting a business, the family business into four so that each son could maintain their household. And that stayed with me. And I became very focused on the power of a strong economy and what it could do for young people. And that became a pivotal starting point for founding Jusor later. But back to your original question, you know, we also experienced the amazing things in the US and what it had to offer. Um, the education system, the extracurricular system, and our parents pushed us to achieve in amazing ways um, to always reach our full potential. And that set us up to just do very important work, um, you know, me and my siblings as we grew up. So tell us also, a little bit. I also go will ahead, say, go ahead. I also will say the other part of me growing up is watching the active role my parents played in the community. And that also shaped me in a huge way. My both of my parents were very involved in, in establishing the Arab American Medical Association. They were part of the early days of establishing it and founding it. So I watched my dad 
chair the annual conferences and bring the community together or establish the foundation that then funded so many so much medical equipment in the region. And I watched my mom not only work in that organization, but to create scholarship funds at local universities to support Arab American students or even the work they did with their hospital to help the hospital develop and grow as an institution. And that was very important for me as well, as I had that example in my life of you don't only work hard professionally, but you are passionate about creating opportunity for the community and you, you, you dream big and then you roll up your sleeves and you play an active leadership role. And I learned that from my parents as well. I may have met your father about two decades ago. I was doing stand-up comedy and I performed for the Arab American Medical Association two different times. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun yep. uh, talking about Arab American heritage. Tell us a little bit now about Jasur. What moved you to co-found it? And tell us a little bit about it. I know I described it as a not-for-profit and, you know, they create the, uh, educational and professional uh, uh, opportunities for Syrian uh, youth and refugees that in today's world, that has to be really tough because uh, a number of weeks back, I spoke, spoke with uh, Zahar Sahlul from Med Global, and he said the largest number of refugees in the world are Syrians, displaced and uh, people and refugee people. And that has to be a huge burden. Tell us a little bit about that and a look at the situation for Syrian refugees and displaced people. Well, I will start by saying Jasur is the most beautiful story of hope. So when you think of Syria these days, it is a very um, sad um, and, and um, sad and devastating and debilitating situation. You almost look at it and say, what can be done? It is such a, there are so many forces that are working against us and the people of Syria. But when you think about Jasur, it is a very different feeling and um, story of impact. We feel and experience hope every single day in the work we do with Jasur. So unlike those other stories that are more um, uh, draining from an energy perspective, Jasur is very different. And it's because we start, the whole mission of the organization is to invest in Syria's youth for a brighter tomorrow. We believe that if we, we are working to prevent a lost generation for the country, and we believe this is one of the most important areas we can all invest in is giving children the opportunity to learn to read and write so they can have the gift of literacy because life without that is very difficult. Or young people that are college age, the opportunity to go to university. And we invest in students who have the potential to be change agents who will, when you invest in one of them, they'll have multiplicative impact for those around them um, and a multiplier effect. And so we look for individuals like that. So that's that's what we do. As I said, we've educated 10,000 young people since we started the organization. It's closer to 15,000 wow. now. Wow. Um, and that is a remarkable number if you think about it. And I think that is barely scratching the surface of the impact we've had because of the fact that because there are so many scholarships we've made available to young people, so many others have chosen to continue their high school and primary education because they believe there's an end in sight. And of those you know, thousands that we've educated from a university perspective, they're off changing the lives of thousands and tens of thousands of others. So 15,000 is the direct impact. The indirect impact is dramatically greater. And this was all started in 2011 by a group of young professionals. We were in our you know, 20s and 30s at the time. And we came from all parts of Syria. We'd grown up in various um, back, we'd gr grown up around the world um, of Syrian descent, similar to me, representing all religions, ethnicities, you know, all different perspectives about the political situation in Syria, different views, but it didn't matter. We were unified by our focus on education and investing in youth. And we 
did this, we've, we've deployed over $20 million and educated all these young people. And we've, we've established Jasur in a very different way than a traditional nonprofit, bringing private sector approaches to running a nonprofit organization in terms of marketing and branding and community building and, and how we raise funding and how we build programs in a way that's constantly thinking about 10xing our impact every year by getting innovative approaches to the programs we lead. So that's the story of Jasur um, and what we do. And, as, and just to be clear, the programs we run, we have a refugee education program focused on driving literacy among young people. That's housed in Lebanon, um, focusing on that community. Um, but we have programs in Jordan and Turkey as well. Um, we run a university and scholarship, a university and high school scholarship program where we've provided close to a thousand scholarships to students in over 40 countries with institutions around the world. And we run a um, uh, career development and entrepreneurship program, helping young people actually get the skills that they need to become employed or to find work um, through the not, through the entrepreneurship ventures that they create. So that's the organization. And the way it came to be founded um, was through all the life experiences I'd had. As I mentioned, it came from this passion I developed visiting Syria in the summer to close the opportunity gap with Syrian youth. It came from the insight I experienced in those summers about the incredible asset that Syria had, like many Arab countries, of their expatriate population abroad and how the expatriate population could play a transformational role for the people inside the country. And that's what we did with Jasur. And then it came from watching my parents and the role they had in the community and the impact they had. And it came from my experience at Harvard where we got together um, all the alumni of the um, Society of Arab Students on campus and formed the Harvard Arab Alumni Association and had had significant impact. So those were some of the things that went into founding Shasur. Yeah, and I've been to the uh, Harvard uh, Arab American Student Association events. They're phenomenal. Um, and I think that's a great organization. What stories stick to you? A profile, a story that shows you the impact of the dreams you know, realized by these young people, these Syrian youth, and have a multiplier effect to their community. Can you talk a little bit about that? There are so many stories here. So many stories. Um, Is there one that really moves you or that when you think about it, I, I know there are things in life that are become energy for you to want to do more, you know, because yes. they just, everything falls into place. Perfect. There are so Sometimes. many stories. I can talk about one of the first cohorts of students that we brought to the United States through our scholarship program. And that was the, um, we had a program with the Illinois Institute of Technology. It was one of our first programs. And we were committed to bringing something like 25 to 50 students from Syria to that program. And they came on campus. We worked so hard to get them on campus. The university was an amazing partner there. And they came on campus. And of course, their first semester was a struggle. They struggled to get used to the academics and just all, the, the entire atmosphere and environment. But once they were comfortable, they took the university campus by storm. And the deans of the campus and colleges would call us and say, we've never seen anything like this. These, these, these students from Syria are the most ambitious, accomplished we've ever seen. And there were previous groups from different countries that always amazed us in their achievement. And this cohort has far surpassed what those have done. And I realized when you bring in young people who have who are fighting for everything, who've experienced complete loss, who've experienced, you know, been at the brink of death, have seen so many loved ones die, who are fighting so hard for the future of their country, they're gonna come in with unrivaled tenacity to achieve and unrivaled passion to give back. And that's what we saw in this cohort. They left they they not only did they achieve academic outcomes beyond 
beyond anything the university had ever seen. They got admitted to the top the, the, um, companies. They got accepted to the top companies that had never happened before from the Illinois Institute of Technology or just set new records in terms of the number of students who got into Goldman Sachs or the number of students who got into Google. Um, and so it was unbelievably inspiring. And so number one, that in itself was huge a huge outcome because in those roles, they were able to learn so much, such diverse backgrounds, and um, and also change the reputation associated with a country like Syria. We talked about some of that stigma right. of being Arab American, but when you get these top achievers, they totally change the way people perceive the country, which was impactful in itself. But the beauty of what they went on to then do is form their own nonprofit organizations to give back at scale. They'd watched what Jasur had done, they'd learned, and then they, as just one example, and there's so many of these, they went on to found an organization called the Syrian Youth Empowerment Organization that went on to um, tutor and mentor hundreds of high school students in the region. And they've now gotten in several, I'd say, you know, in the, in the dozens into Ivy League universities and gotten them full scholarships to study. So talk about a multiplier effect. That is just one example of where we've educated a small number of individuals who've then gone on to make tremendous change at scale, driving reputational change for Syria getting the skills that they'll need in the future to go off and create all sorts of organizations and institutional support for the country, but already paying that off with the nonprofit organization they've created. So that is just one of many organizations that makes me so proud. I'll give you one more just to show you a different sector. One of our young women went on to work at, I believe it's the IL, um, the IMF, but one of the global um, organizations focused on um, you know, global economic attainment. And she was working on research associated with over-sanctioning. You know, when you take the sanctioning laws and you you over you overimpose them. And as we all know from the Arab world, those sanctions can be debilitating and devastating to individuals and civilians. And yes. for her to do that research to help companies and institutions improve the, the way in which they're applying the sanctions, that can have profound impact on the region. And so just one example of a different sector where I saw us fill in important research areas and important areas of focus that will help the region over time. What's interesting about this is that you're not a traditional Arab woman. And your mother, though, was in computer science, I think you said. So that's a little non-traditional to begin with. So it had an impact on you. And you said something about in when you were helping uh, Syrian youth that you brought in all these assets that you picked up being a uh, really in the corporate world in the United States, in the West, marketing, understanding how to structure things, uh, a phenomenal education, obviously, too. But sometimes you can have a great education, never be able to put those pieces together. Can you reflect on that a little bit? I mean, you brought so much to the table that made Jasur successful to do what it did. 15,000 students is huge. Well, I'd love to say first, I do think I'm a very traditional Arab American woman. Um, I think so much of what my upbringing represents is consistent with the extraordinary attributes that Arab Americans bring and have experienced. Uh, um, one story that's very interesting I will share before I answer your question about how we brought so much creative energy to Jasur and so much innovation, but one story I will share about Arab American values and Arab values is when I got ready to go to college, 
I wanted, you know, my, my dad said to me, you can go, uh, unless you get into Harvard, you need to stay in Michigan. We grew up in Michigan. And uh, that was partially, you know, given the concept of a, the idea of um, it being very hard to send a daughter away so far away to college when we, right. you know, family was so close and you just held your daughters close as part of the Arab world. So that was, that was a hard challenge. And he, so I, so I said, okay, dad, I'm up for the challenge. And I, I got into Harvard. And then my mom and dad worried so much about would would my grandfather who was in Damascus let me go because it was shocking to have an Arabic girl travel that far away from her family to university. And so my mom was very worried about it. And finally, they told my grandfather I'd been accepted to Harvard. And his reaction was 100% opposite than what they anticipated. Instead of saying no, he celebrated my my wow. my, my um, admission. And he, he he bought a gold medal for me that had Allahumma Rabbi Zidni Ilman on it, which is a prayer from a verse from the Quran talking about may God increase my knowledge and my learning. And that was wow. the most beautiful thing. It highlights the centrality of education and and achievement um, that is very present in Arab values. So I'll just share that. You know, he just like many um, many you know many families. There was always an emphasis on education, and so my mom was always put in the best schools and um, pushed to to achieve all that she could. And when she came here, it was very natural for her to get into the well, University of Michigan and study computer science. So just sharing that. Um, well, before we get into the first the second part of that question, talk a little bit about a traditional Arab woman. Has it been redefined? I mean, we are seeing Arab women doing so much more. I mean, I'm much older, obviously. So when I grew up, you're absolutely right. They wanted my daughter, my sister to get married. They wanted my brother and I to get these big careers. Um, I don't know if that just was the easy route to avoid conflict or problems. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but everybody ended up changing and doing well. Have we changed the image of a traditional, the definition of a traditional Arab woman? Is it changed today, do you think? Possibly. I think there's, you know, many different facets of the culture, just like those that exist here. And so you have different families and different backgrounds, and they'll emphasize different things. I will say, even when I went to Harvard back in the um, late 90s, I graduated in 2001, I met some formidable women from the Arab world and formidable, and they could take on anyone. And that was, you know, decades ago, women from the Gulf. And so I would say that the, that even many years ago, there's always been this, you know, multifaceted approach to Arab women and their strength and what they offer. Um, but I'm, you know, so, so I would argue that even in the past, we've had the strength and strong pockets in the region and, and possibly it's continuing as well. So. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, first of all, it's always great. That, listen, I feel great um, to see women being treated equally and to excel beyond men in many cases. In other words, now it's based on talent, not on your gender. That That's is right. phenomenal to see that. And I think that is a big change that we're seeing slowly spreading across uh, the Arab world. Tell us a little bit about the assets. Now, you're, a, you know, I mean, you're not just an Arab American. You're not just uh, somebody that has done so much in terms of humanitarian relief for Syrians or an, an Arab youth. You're at the top of the, you know, uh, computer science, uh, you know, computer technology industry. Uh, you were at Intuit, which is a phenomenally wide-based, successful corporation. You worked with them, and then you took over MailChimp. You know, you kind of merged, and I don't mean to mischaracterize, you know, what's happening, but I'm just trying to summarize it. Um, and those are two big influencers in our society today. 
Um, and to have a woman driving it, for a lot of Arabs, still the old-fashioned Arabs, they'd say, wow, that's huge. And uh, tell us about how difficult that was. Is it difficult to kind of have the Arab background and then yet transition into an American uh, or Western uh, profile where you're actually running these big corporations? Uh, no, uh, I grew up, um, you know, the Arab component of my background only provides a sense of identity and strength and personality, but no, it's never been a deficit at all or held me back. You know, today in the world, in the um, corporate world, there's an increased movement towards diversity, uh, equity and inclusion and representation. And so earlier on in my career, there certainly was a stigma associated with being of Arab American descent. And I certainly held it back. It wasn't something that I promoted. I, you know, remember applying for my first job and scrubbing every reference to Arab American off of my resume, right. which was interesting because a lot of the work I had done in college was um, was part being part of that community and and organizing things. But I I chose to say I want people to understand me and recognize my value and the impact I'm having without any preconceived notions of who I was or what my background right. was. So that was very early in my career. I will say the environment today is quite different. It is celebrated to have strong identity and a diverse identity and background and a strength because we are in the corporate sector, especially, I would say it's even stronger in the tech community, but we are, and Intuit is certainly a champion of this. We are trying to have a very broad workforce that comes in with all forms of representation and diverse backgrounds. And we celebrate those things because it brings in diversity of thought and experience that makes us stronger. And so today it is celebrated as opposed to being something that is that is more negative. So I certainly speak very openly about my background and all of that to help others speak openly about their background and their identity and to help promote others wanting to join and see themselves in, in leadership. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll share that. Um, but frankly, so much of what I've attained has been very much because of the mindset um, of constantly willing to challenge myself and take on a, a, a massive challenge that I don't necessarily know how I'm going to achieve as I get into it and feeling confident that I will find a way that I will continue to iterate on my leadership approach and my, um, my um, you know, just learn from different people and constantly look for advice and try different things in order to be successful in the end. And I would say that's what's been at the core of me continuing to take on bigger challenges is just that mindset of being comfortable, being constantly uncomfortable with the, with the scale of the challenge and the opportunity ahead of me. And I know that it's always a challenge for Arab Americans, me as a journalist for 45 years, always having to explain to people what an Arab American is and trying to educate Americans. But I realized, and I think that you did too, that you have to tell them who you are because it changes their incorrect perceptions. It shows you as being, wow, this person has been very successful. Oh, and they're Arab American. They're from Syria. That to me, it's it's not an easy thing to do. Wasn't that a little difficult to try to merge that into uh, your career? Um, it takes a while. It can't happen quickly, can it? That's right. It does. Um, I would say that I tried first slow, you know, in many ways, COVID changed a lot of how we showed up in the professional environment as leaders. 
it pushed yes, for more vulnerability and being more open. And that certainly had to do with our identity and background possibly, but certainly with you know some of the challenges we each faced as leaders and how we were dealing with the challenges associated with COVID. And our employees needed to hear more of that to help them deal with their challenges and struggles. And it just created a more a greater opportunity to bring your whole self to work, uh, to, to have those open conversations about who you were and your identity and all of those things. So I found, you know, I experimented with some of those things early on and recognized the impact it had on our employees and the feedback I would get. And I was recognizing that that made me a more successful leader because people identified with me and my stories and my background. And that helped them be more successful. And we were able to recruit more talent of different backgrounds to our organization. So yes, you're right. These things are challenging and you need to experiment with it to do more of it. But for me, it's been an asset, not a hindrance, ultimately. So it is so inspirational to listen to an Arab woman. Um, and, and, you know, in a, in a way, it's kind of uh, uh, sexist or gender bias. But to see you actually in front there doing all these things makes me feel like you actually can do more good. It's very inspirational. You're bringing change to our community. They're seeing us in a different light because of the way that you do things. Are there any final thoughts? I know we've talked about a lot of things. I hope we didn't miss anything, but is there anything that you want to mention or tell the audience about you know, how they should move forward, deal with challenges of being Arab American? Uh, maybe they're an Arab American woman out there, a young lady um, that is, you know, caught between the traditional and non-traditional aspects of our culture. Um, what, what, do you, what would you like to say or is there anything you'd like to talk about beyond, beyond that? Well, I'd love to close with two thoughts. First, I want to recognize and celebrate the extraordinary work of the Center for Arab American Philanthropy, which is the organization that is recognizing me and the work of Jasur um, at their annual gala in September. Another example of an extraordinary organization that was established and has been led primarily by Arab American women. So another example of very strong and high impact women in the Arab world, all with the purpose of helping bring the Arab American community together in their philanthropy efforts. So not only increasing philanthropy, but when there is philanthropy joining forces so that when a check goes out to a large organization with a donation, it's coming from the Arab at the Center for Arab American Philanthropy, also oriented at changing the uh, association with the context of Arab Americans. So couldn't I'm extremely proud and inspired by the work that that organization has done. You know, in closing, what I would say to anyone listening is the most the most amazing thing I've learned through my work with Jasura is, which has which we had extraordinarily high expectations for, and I believe we've surpassed those extraordinarily high expectations with the impact we've had. But the thing I've learned is sometimes we look at deeply entrenched challenges in this world. And it can be very depressing. And as I said earlier, debilitating. You know, what can I even do with a situation as dark as what Syria is facing today? And what I've learned is when we come together, even as individuals to create organizations or to create a movement, we can actually have pretty profound impact on these challenges. And so I would just encourage people to not look at these daunting challenges and step back, but rather to lean in to form a team with diverse opinions and perspectives and diverse backgrounds that you can all challenge each other and build on each other, bring innovation from different sectors of the world and, and go at it. Because what I've experienced from Jasur, as I said, is we can have profound impact on even the most entrenched problems in our, in our society today. We've really been privileged uh, today to be talking with Rania Sukar, um, the Syrian American CEO of Intuit, MailChimp, co-founder of Jasur, 
Um, she's going to be receiving the Outstanding Arab American Philanthropist of the Year Award at the Center for American Philanthropy. Uh, Threads of Giving Gala at Guglimo Winery on September 22nd, 2023. Rania, it, it just really, it, it's, uh, it's moving to see somebody like you breaking stereotypes, doing positive things, and doing things that nobody can say they don't like. You're doing great things, and I just want to thank you for coming on the radio show. Thanks for having me, Ray. Thanks for the great discussion. You're welcome. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand. Quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rico Picon, Donna, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. هل تلقى أطفالكم أحدث نسخة من لقاح كوفيد-19؟ لقد تم لغاية اليوم تطعيم أكثر من 5.5 مليار شخص بلقاح كوفيد-19 وأثبتت النتائج أن اللقاحات كانت فعالة حيث قام الخبراء حول العالم بإجراء الاختبارات اللازمة ليكون اللقاح آمناً وفعالاً اللقاح لا يحميكم أنتم وعائلتكم فقط بل يحمي المجتمع كله قوموا بواجبكم من خلال التحدث إلى مقدمي الخدمات الصحية أو زيارة michigan.gov رسالة من وزارة الصحة والخدمات الإنسانية and welcome back, everybody. Now I'd like to talk to uh, Joseph Tamraz. He is president of the Assyrian American Civic Club of Chicago. And we're going to talk a little bit about who are the Assyrians, the Assyrian community in the United States, um, a little bit about the uh, census. Does MENA include everybody from the Middle East? And is that a good way to be identified um, if you're Chaldean or Assyrian? Um, it doesn't tell you how many Assyrians or Chaldeans there are out there. So we're going to talk with Joe about uh, some of these issues. Joe, Tamaris, thank you so much for joining the program. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for our uh, invitation and uh, I'm glad to be here with you and uh, your listener. Yeah, now, of course, I've followed the Assyrian community for many, many years. As uh, you know, I, I spoke with you earlier, there was Klamis Ganji when he had the Assyrian newspaper going back, I think, in the 70s when I first met him. But the Assyrian community is a big influential community in Chicago. Tell us a little bit of how big is that Assyrian community in Chicagoland and in the United States? Are there other Assyrian communities in the country? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we have uh, basically all over uh, the United States, you know, especially in certain uh, states. Uh, and definitely here in the state of Illinois at uh, Chicago, because this was uh, one of the first places that uh, people from um, 
Iran, Iraq, and Syria, and all over, they came to the United States because of uh, uh, sea, you know, because they were coming through uh, 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 ocean, things like that in the past. And they came here and start uh, uh, living and uh, growing, growing. So we had the uh, big community here. We had a lot of uh, even old churches in the uh, uh, Chicago area. And uh, our uh, population started growing, especially uh, after uh, uh, war in Iraq, Iran, and uh, in Syria, Lebanon, and all, all the stuff in, uh, was going on in the Middle East. So a lot of people from those countries, uh, they left and uh, they came to the United States. So now we have a really large uh, community in the Chicagoland. And uh, in the Chicago itself, I, I will say, we have uh, over 100 to maybe 150,000 people uh, live. And um, we have, um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, people that are in the suburbs, you know, used to live in Chicagoland, but they are now moving to uh, suburbs of the, uh, Chicago, but close, not too far. And even some of them there are, you know, because of uh, their work, their studies and things like that, uh, the lifestyle has changed these days. Uh, but, it, but it's a... It's a big community, though. Of, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. We, we are a big community. So we, we're still uh, hoping, you know, in getting together and have some events, you know, in church and on festivals and some parties. Uh, because uh, even from those days that you mentioned in the 70s and even before that, we used to have a lot of uh, events uh, that used to uh, getting us together. As soon as they like the music, uh, we, uh, we like to dance, so uh, that's mm -hmm. one, one of the things that is uh, keeping us uh, close to each other, and uh, with the parties, with the uh, weddings, and things like that. Well, I know that uh, you know I've known many Assyrians over the years, and uh, I and I know it's always been a big community. But I also know that Assyrians are not Arab. You know, even though they're from the Middle East region, um, in this category of MENA, Middle East and North yeah. Africa. Um, but technically, I, I mean, culturally, you may share the Arabic language, the food, music, but you also have your own identity, too. T tell us a little bit about Assyrians. Where are they well, from? Well, and definitely, yeah, we, we are from Middle Eastern countries, uh, but Assyria used to be a huge empire. It used to be, uh, you know, back of the days, uh, like uh, all Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and all that region used to be Assyria, used to call it Assyria. Uh, we were a big empire, you know. Uh, we have uh, uh, over uh, 6,000 uh, years, uh, even our calendar is uh, 6,754, uh, you know, this year. But, you know, uh, uh, we are a, a big uh, community, big empire. Uh, so we were separate. We're not Arab or, uh, you know, the, the other, uh, and nationality with this. So we are our, our own nationality. And even these days, if every part of like Iraq, if you uh, uh, basically, you'll find a lot of our uh, treasures, uh, uh, you know, buried in, in land. So uh, you can find them. So we are not Arab, we are Assyrian. So uh, we are completely different. And, uh, you know, we're not, uh, uh, you know, actually, Arab language is based on our language. It's not our language based on them. You know, uh, our language is a lot older than Arab or Persia and, uh, you know, all those, you know, 
the Chipto uh, our language. So there is a lot of similarity, you know, especially even with the Hebrew too, you know, uh, there is a lot of similarity, but they took from us because our language was a lot more, you know, older and uh, uh, richer with all uh, grammars, all the uh, history behind it. So, and, uh, and so they come from the Middle East, what is today the Middle East? I mean, it's evolved, but yeah. it also, uh, many of them are from the Iran, the Persian Empire, um, from uh, areas, are they from Iraq also? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. As, because there are Chaldeans in Iraq too. There's a group called Chaldeans. Are those the same as Assyrians or a different uh, ethnic group? Well, uh, no, no. Actually, uh, there are Assyrian too, you know. Uh, but uh, they uh, belong to a church of, uh, you know, Catholic church. So they try to separate themselves. You know, uh, that's a different story. So we don't want to get into that. That's that's <laughs> internal problem that, that we have. That, the but, Middle East uh, is always like that. So yeah. there are always these little stories. So the Chaldeans from the Assyrians look at the Chaldeans and say they're basically from your community, but they've gone off into a different uh, uh, religious uh, arm in the Catholic community. What's the religion of Assyrians? Well, for, you know, Assyrians, they are all Christians. Uh, you know, um, because, you know, and Jesus spoke our language, Aramaic. You know, we are uh, basically to a lot of people. We are on the first page of Bible, if you can find us. Uh, so uh, we are Christian. And, uh, uh, but, you know, we we get a lot of domination, things like that. So uh, it's a depend because, you know, we moved to, uh, we lived in a lot of different countries. So things have changed. So uh, we have basically majority of the Syrians belong to Church of the East. But again, okay. they have two, two, two parts. Uh, old calendar and a new calendar, and also uh, uh, we have Catholic, we have uh, uh, Presbyterian, we have Evangelical, we have all denominations, but all, all of them there are Christian. So you know, and that's that's the common de denominator to, in these days, correct? Yeah. And the fact that does it do do Assyrians get upset when they say they're from the Middle East? That that's okay, but they. I know some Assyrians get upset when they say you're, they look at you. There are a lot of Americans who can't tell the difference between you and me. Um, and they think you're Arab because they don't know better. But correct. Assyrians are definitely not Arab, correct? Correct. Culturally. Correct. correct. Completely different. You know, we are not Arab. We're not Persian. We're not that. You know, with those, uh, those countries we came uh, from, you know, so basically you can say like your uh, second nationality because, you know, we are, for instance, we are here. American, okay, right. but you know we are Syrian. We are American as well, you know. And uh, so in those countries we were live, we used to live. Uh, so we were Assyrian, uh, Iranian, Assyrian, uh, Iraqi, Assyrian, uh, Syrian. You know, you know, from all those countries that we were belong to. But right now, uh, we are Assyrians. Uh, uh, we live, you know, all those. So uh, basically, yes, a lot of people did they, they confuse. So we try to correct them and you know, educate them. So like, uh, you know, uh, uh, we were uh, as a, in a civic club, we were at the uh, Mount Prospect uh, uh, Cultural Festival for first year uh, we attended this year. So a lot of people, they asked the questions. Uh, so we were trying to explain it to them. Uh, you know, we had a uh, variety of the, our uh, 
uh, custom, uh, you know, artifacts. Uh, so we show them, you know, we, we try to explain it to them. Also, we, we participate at Skokie Festival of Culture. We try to explain it to them. And that's why we do a lot of events that we have, you know, like those festival or like parade. For instance, you see that, that uh, float in the back of, uh, you know, uh, uh, in your picture, your image. My yeah. picture, yeah. That's one of our uh, float that we participate in the parades. We participate in the St. Patrick's Parade, 4th of July parades, Columbus Parade, Thanksgiving Parade, uh, and so many other uh, that uh, we're trying to do. We try to explain it to other communities, you know, who we are and what we are, you know, because we know about each other, we know about uh, ours, you know, even participate in our events, I'm not uh, saying that, you know, I participate at, uh, uh, you know, we have a Syrian New Year, uh, we call it Khabnisan, uh, you know, beginning of the uh, start of the spring. I think, you know, that uh, picture is from that because it's right behind it, it's a, a Warren Park, which uh, basically we used to do it in, on uh, Western Avenue by right. Warren Park. Yeah. So it's, you know, uh, that's what we try to do. We try to, educate uh, the other communities about them ourselves. Now, uh, obviously we don't have exact numbers and uh, there, I know that the, the Arab community has been pushing to be identified in the census. They yes. want to be identified. How many Arabs are there in the United States? How many Arabs are there in Chicago, in Illinois? And they can't seem to be identified because the government won't recognize us on the census. Is that the same problem with the Assyrians? It must be even more complicated for you because yes. when they look at you and me, they see Arab. But in yes. fact, the Assyrians are a different uh, culture in the Middle East. Does the identity of Middle East and North Africa, does that do you justice as an Assyrian or would you rather be identified as Assyrian on the census? We, we would love to uh, be identified as a Syrian. We tried it so many times, uh, this past uh, uh, census and also the one before that, uh, to uh, be recognized as, as a Syrian, have a, a space on the uh, uh, things as a Syrian. But unfortunately, you know, uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, we will try to work with the government, you know, explaining to them, uh, work with them, you know, uh, and, uh, um, it's not working, and also we don't have we don't want to have another categories now that would come up with that mental things, you know. That's another one. Uh, so I don't know how that's gonna work, but you know the saying, you know, they have the category there, and then they're gonna have subcategory, which is gonna will explain the Assyrian, which I don't think's gonna be that, you know, because always the same. So, uh, uh, like I said in the past two uh, census. We try to work with different group, with different uh, uh, things, you know, to identify ourselves. But unfortunately, at the end, uh, basically, we get screwed. We didn't, uh, we didn't get recognized. So You're left last, Yeah, we were left out. As at the last one, uh, we were telling the people, uh, uh, you know, go to a certain path and write a Syrian on the end of things. But unfortunately, right. so when they of, fill out the census, when they fill out the census. You're telling them go to that that's one spot that says other and yeah. you write Assyrian. I used to do that as an Arab. Yeah. And then I started protesting. I refused to do the census because yeah. they don't include me. Yeah. But this MENA category they passed in Illinois, they say that 
MENA, Middle East and North Africa, includes everybody and gives empowerment for Arabs. But I don't understand how that has any value when it doesn't tell us how many Chaldeans there are, how many Assyrians there are, how many Arabs, how many Persians, how many Kurds. You know, the, yes. the Middle East and North Africa is a big region. Um, and I just don't see that identifying us in any way uh, as who we are. It's like they've given us a big umbrella to say we're Mina. I'm not Mina. I'm Arab. I want to be called Arab. I don't want to be called Mina. Yeah. And, and that's what if you go that and there are cert certain uh, countries, you know, they're not saying about anything else. They said uh, about those countries. So uh, again, we are not including in those. So they should have said, you know, these countries and the people that they, live in that, you know, like Assyrians and Chaldean, you know, whatever, you know, um, you know, other other nationalities that are, you know, it's not just that, you know, uh, we, you know, there are different nationalities that live in those countries. Uh, yes. They're not be always be left out. So yes. we want to be, uh, all of us, we want to be uh, kind of be uh, connect as who we are, not right. as, you know, somebody else's. So, so you have the number. We want to have a bigger number, but, you know, we, we don't want it. You want to know how many you actually are. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew how many Assyrians were in Illinois, the actual number? based on an official government census, because that results in money, federal money to the Assyrian community, the Chaldean community, which is small in Illinois, but huge in Michigan, um, yeah. and the Arab community. We don't even know how many Arabs there are that are living in, uh, in Illinois. I think that some people want us to be confused, and they keep doing it, because this MENA legislation doesn't even say the word Arab in it. So I don't know how Mina is any good to anybody. Any final thoughts, jo Joseph, about the Assyrian community in uh, the U.S.? Well, for, uh, you know, um, uh, Assyrian communities that are uh, getting larger and stronger in the United States. Uh, we are, uh, like you mentioned, we are in Illinois, we are in California, we are in Arizona, we are in Texas, we are uh, in uh, also like New York in Connecticut. You know, uh, Michigan, uh, we have, you know, we're not that big, but, you know, uh, we are all over. So we want to be counted as who we are in the uh, uh, census. And also, um, we, we want to do whatever that, you know, other uh, nationalities are doing. You know, we are uh, American. Uh, uh, we want to use the same freedoms that everybody has. Uh, we use that one, uh, uh, work. Uh, publicize uh, our nationality, our heritage, our language, uh, our music, you know, everything. Uh, you know, uh, thanks God, we are able to do that, but uh, some of st stuff, you know, coming up, we're trying to knock us down, which is bad. All right, I want to thank my guest, Joseph Tamraz. He's the president of the Assyrian American Civic Club of Chicago. Joseph, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, uh, and have a good time. And uh, I'll say, uh, you know, to all your listeners, uh, to listen to your programs and also to other programs, because you will learn about other communities, you know. All right. Thank you, Joe. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com.
Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. شوية نشرب قهوة في حتة بعيدة عزمني على نكتة جديدة وخلي حساب الضحك علي يا ما نفسي عايش انسان قلبه على كفه كل اللي بردانين في كفوفه يتدفوا حمزة نمرة يجدو بأحلى الألحان في أمريكا تغير يا ما عن زمان قافل على قلبك البيبان حبيت وفرقت كم مكان عايش جواك حمزة نمرة وجولة غنائية يبدأها يوم 8 سبتمبر في واشنطن العاصمة و9 سبتمبر في ديربورن ميشيغان وآخر حفلاته يحييها في شيكاغو بولاية ألينوي 10 سبتمبر وسيتم تخصيص العائدات بالكامل لإرسال مساعدات إنسانية إلى سوريا واليمن والسودان عامل قاسي وجوايا مفيش أسوة ماليش غير أسوتي عزوة بتدوا الحق للأقوى وبتيجوا تملع الطيب وتدعو منظمة الحياة للإغاثة والتنمية Life for Relief and Development جمهور الحفلات لزيارة الجناح المخصص لها بموقع كل حفلة للتعرف على مشاريعها التنموية والإغاثية والتي تسهم في تقديم المساعدات للآلاف من المحتاجين حول العالم ولمعرفة المزيد عن أنشطة منظمة الحياة زوروا موقعهم على lifeusa.org ولمزيد من المعلومات حول الحجوزات وأماكن الحفلات زوروا الموقع الخاص بالحجز على www.rugvirtue.com وروح لحالك لتعبني مرة واحدة سيبني أمشي وادوس على الماضي القليل Are your hands feeling numb? Do you feel pain opening up a jar, turning a key? Are you noticing that your elbow and your shoulder are becoming stiff? Or were you recently injured in your arm? Hello, I'm Dr. Albajit Katranji. And at the Katranji Hand Center, which just recently opened down the street from the Somerset Mall, we can provide you with the latest in hand, wrist, elbow, and shoulder care. Visit us at www.katranjihandcenter.com to learn the latest techniques that we have to offer you, and I look forward to taking care of you. Visit us in Troy at 1565 West Big Beaver Road, Building F, or call Katranji Hand Center for an appointment at 248-869-4263.
You've been listening to the Ray Hanania Radio Show brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News, Season 3, Episode 19, September 6, 2023. You can listen to this podcast and all of our past radio shows on podcast by visiting Arab News Newspaper, the voice of a changing region at ArabNews.com. You should check out all of our podcasts by visiting ArabNews.com. And you can get more information on me, and my bio and my background as a journalist by visiting hananiah.com. I look forward to you next week when we have more interviews and great guests here at the Ray Hananiah Radio Show on the U.S. Arab Radio Network at arabradio.us, sponsored by Arab News, the voice of a changing region at arabnews.com. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.